this week. I think I emailed you guys out kind of a little bit of the agenda today. We're going to spend the next five, ten minutes um, in a devotional. And then you should have gotten a handout in the back. If you didn't get it, um, we can get them to you or get it on your way out. But you should have a handout, a homework, and the build group list. And the discussion group list really only changed from last week by adding people who weren't here. So if you stayed in this room last week because you weren't here or you weren't on the list, you've kind of been redistributed into other groups or into groups. And if you aren't on that list, then you can stay in here this week. So Eric, we're adding people to your group on a regular basis. Um, and then um, make sure that you grab that, sign in. Um, and I think that's it. So I'm gonna go through James 3 this morning. So go ahead and turn there. What I want to do this morning is actually just walk you through a little bit of an example of what heart shepherding should look like in the morning when you open God's Word. And so I took James 3 because that's something I've read recently, and, um, and it was one of those quiet times that I was like, man, that was really helpful. And so I kind of took my notes from that and expanded on them and turned that into what we're talking about this morning. And so this is really an example of just how you go to God's Word in a way where you meet with the God of the Word. And so I'm going to go ahead and read James 3, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll talk about it. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by human, the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send the same, from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, and a, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. As we look at that passage, you really kind of see one piece of instruction and six illustrations. Um, so the instruction is, not many become teachers. And, and the, he gives kind of two whys. One, because they incur stricter judgment. And two, and this is kind of my um, summary statement of it, is the mouth is a window into the man's sanctification. Um, and so what you say is a window into your sanctification. 
And then he gives a bunch of illustrations around why. Um, he looks at the, the horse and bridle, the ship and rudder, and shows that it controls little things, or it's a little thing that controls your whole body. Um, and as, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, if this is the case, and it is, then I can look at what I say and see where my heart really is. I can look at my words that I've spoken over the last week and see where is there sin in my heart that needs to be rooted out. And so in a quiet time, this is an opportunity to say, where am I being sinful that I may not notice, but I just got a view of this um, because my mouth is an opportunity to see that. So what has my mouth been doing lately? Um, and there's, there's a lot of examination in that. I actually... Um, got shingles in the last couple of weeks and I was texting Jacob Hantla and he's like well shingles are a sign of something wrong with your immune system so are you not exercising are you eating poorly are you not sleeping and I was like yeah all of those um, <laughs> and he's like well there you go <laughs> And, and as I thought about that, I was like, well, this is a similar thing with the mouth. Like, the mouth is a window, which I know we just saw it read six illustrations, and I came up with another one. But the mouth is a window into where our sanctification really is. Um, and so what is my mouth doing? Um, I know for me, there's been complaining. Um, I, my daughter recently said, you know, we wear masks. We just complain about them. I'm like, thanks, sweetie. That's helpful. <laughs> um, like, like that was an okay thing to do I'm like okay first I gotta shepherd you away from complaining then I gotta confess that I'm complaining then I've got okay that was kids are awesome um, but even your mouth can do little things like even just sigh when something isn't the, going the way you want um, you can see it try to deceive people whether it's in the way that they view you um, or even worse, um, I, a lot of my life is negotiation, and I see myself trying in small ways to use my mouth in a way to um, not be completely honest um, and manipulate the situation. Um, and so there's, there's ways that your mouth can, can interact with people that show a much, much worse thing in your heart. And you can't, you don't even see it. It's very helpful to know, to watch your mouth and see how it's showing you where your heart really is. But you don't want to stop there. You want to then look at the root um, issue. So let's go back to complaining. Um, I think the root in a lot of my complaining is, is pride and, and functionally a lack of resting in the sovereignty of God in the situation that we're in right now. Um, and so what do I need to do when I'm not resting in the sovereignty of God? I need to go to the scripture and remind myself of who God is. Um, I, I have verses I love to look at that remind me of who God is, that remind me of what my relationship is with other people. Um, I think there's a lot of... I, I was thinking of... Um, Philippians 2.6 that reminds me that I'm here to serve Ephesians 2.4 that reminds me of who I am in Christ 
Romans 6, just a lot of putting on things that I need to be doing. Um, if, if there's anger rooted in my complaining, there's a lot of passages there. Um, and this is why it's important to write these on your heart so that it's not, okay, let me go do a word study today on what passages deal with this. But let me remind myself of things that I know about God to help me see the sanctification that I need to grow in. Um, and, and I think that that's the piece that like gets missing when we're in our um, quiet time and we're opening up God's word and we're looking and going, I need to get through James 3 today. And we read James 3 and then we move on. Um, you can't let that happen. You've got to enter James 3 prayerfully and, saying, and say, God, how can you change me today so that I can serve you better as the rest of this day goes on. Um, that's really what we're trying to get habits of here in this class, and, and, and it's helpful. Now, I kind of cheated, right? Because James 3, we all know that passage well. That's an easy passage to do that with. Um, if you have this blue chart, you're going to need this. should be uh, in your folder if you got a new folder. If you uh, have been in build before, then you should still have this. Does anyone, does anyone not have this chart? Only people who have, who have been in build. <laughs> can you pass that back? <laughs> you can buy them from Nick. Yeah. If you need <laughs> All right. I remember when this was in the beginning stages. It was a uh, it was a sheet of paper, and it had a few circles on it, like five circles on it that went from all black to all yellow, and uh, that was it. So we've come a long way from that. God's transformation of man from unregenerate to heavenly, the states and events in a believer's life. This, we'll go over the next two meetings. This is an illustration of the original state, fallen state of man, right? Not original, original. That was perfect innocence in the garden. But all, where all men now begin in a fallen state from birth and eventually where the believer ends up in his inner self, what in, eventually happens to his body in the eternal state one day. That, this is going to take us through from the first unregenerate man state all the way to the heavenly man state and what has to happen in the believer's life to make sure that those trans uh, transformations actually occur. This is what God does uh, in in the believer's life. So what you have this week, we'll look at just the left panel, the far left panel, the unregenerate man and regeneration. We'll talk about that state the unregenerate state, and then we'll talk about the regeneration event, okay? If you look at the figure 
at on that left panel he's only dark uh, and you have a in each of these men you have an outline around the figure to represent the members the physical members of the body and uh, what's inside that is the inner self the inner man uh, soul spirit heart mind sometimes it's called in scripture what's what's within you this is where your will your desires your thoughts your words your convictions what you believe all that begins and, and takes place there in the inner self in the mind soul spirit heart okay and what we'll look at today is this unregenerate man what is he characterized by what what describes him as he's in his unregenerate without Christ state and what will as we talk about this this is what you should keep in mind is that this is a description of every single unbeliever in existence without exception prior to someone believing the gospel and experiencing the event that we'll eventually talk about regeneration there on the, the right side of your left panel before that takes place these things are true of unbelievers and if you have children you should be well aware of these things that we'll get to okay let me pray for us and then we'll we'll uh open up in god's word God, thank you so much for communicating these things uh, to us. Um, apart from you revealing these things, we would still be left in the dark without understanding, without knowledge, uh, rejecting what we're going to discuss your word says about us. And God, I pray that as you uh, reveal from your word once again what you say is true, that all of us here would be uh, inclined and compelled to believe you more than our own thoughts, more than how we might be tempted to interpret our own experiences. And even as you, in your word, paint this dark picture of who man is apart from you, I pray that it would uh, convince us again of the tremendous grace, the richness of your mercy that you desire to save people who are at enmity and uh, with you in a state like this. Uh, we know that only your spirit can convince us of truth, and uh, your truth is in Scripture uh, to cause us to rejoice, not to uh, leave us in despair. And so we pray that you would accomplish that today. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, a few things that, that this is going to help us to do. Um, just as we as we look at this bleak, hopeless picture of man, uh, the world would tell us only have happy thoughts. Don't think about the bad. Uh, in many churches, uh, people are taught that you don't focus on sin, right? You don't talk about God's wrath. Those are unpleasant things. And so we should talk about uh, only, only happy things, only uh, bright uh, type things. And, and that's actually not what we're looking at today. And I want to just uh, 
by way of introduction, give us uh, three benefits of looking at this bleak, hopeless picture of man. Uh, really quickly, three things that this is going to do for us. Um, to look at what we're going to see in Scripture justifies God, it produces humility in us, and it ought to increase thankfulness. This will justify God, produce humility, and increase thanksgiving in us. Uh, what we see as we revisit the truth of what God says about the unregenerate man before he believes in Christ, this is going to justify God in this sense. It, 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 we are going to have a chance to declare that God, God's opinion, what he says about us in his word is right over against what we might be inclined to believe about ourselves. Okay? God is right in his words and not only in his words but also in his wrath. It is right what God has said about us and it is right God's disposition toward us because of our sin. So this will help us to justify God in our in our own minds. It also should produce humility in us as we look at who this man is without Christ. Those of us who believe in Jesus, who have been saved uh, by God's grace through faith in the gospel, this should produce humility in us because we should know what we used to be. And if we do, it will help us avoid today being self-righteous, looking down on other people. It will produce a greater compassion for people who are still in this state and without Christ. Okay? Uh, in the words of, of Thomas Boston, he said, the knowledge of man's utter inability to recover himself, right, to save himself, to be reconciled back to God, the knowledge of man's utter inability to recover himself is necessary for the due humiliation of a sinner. That's what we want to have accomplished uh, in us as we revisit this. And the third thing, just to increase thankfulness, thanksgiving in us, uh, if we understand what God says we have been, what we used to be, then that will cause us to be that much more thankful for salvation. If I say I am a sinner, how precious will Christ's blood be to me? Right, somebody who thinks about the cross as, hey, I did my part and so Jesus did his, his part, that person is going to be far less thankful for what Jesus did, they actually don't understand what Christ did if they don't first see themselves as hopeless, absolutely unable to help themselves in the least degree. And so that's what we're going to look at. Those are the things that we want to have accomplished as we look at this bleak picture of man. Turn to Genesis 2. Uh, what, you have, what you have on the chart, we have uh, several New Testament passages, and it would be... Um, a much thicker packet, um, an, a, a whole another book if every, every passage and everything said about the sinner was included in this. And so these are just, uh, this is a snapshot, what you have there in the middle of that chart of what the scriptures say. But we'll start in Genesis 2 and just trace, trace this out quickly through uh, your Bibles from left to right, which is a good way to to trace out what Scripture says about really anything. <clears throat> and uh, just to make sure I don't miss anything on the chart, 
in the middle what you have on that blue strip at the top this person is without Christ he is uh, unrighteous and underneath the unregenerate man in parentheses this is how we want to think about this person he is unmixed he is in an unmixed sinful condition unmixed sinful condition that's important because eventually where we'll get to is an unmixed holy or unmixed righteous condition where you're only all one thing okay one day we will only be holy and righteous and obedient before that happens and even not even now before Christ without Christ we are only always ever sinful and that is again that figure is dark in his members right what he does with his hands with his external body is only always ever sinful and what happens inside him the desires he has the thoughts he thinks the things he's committed to what he chooses all of that is only ever sinful okay so that's the unmixed it's not mixed with a little bit of good and a little bit of evil that's mixed that's the christian now unmixed only always ever sinful only always ever evil okay unmixed sinful condition in genesis 2 god told adam verse 16 that of the consequences that uh would occur would occur if he ate the fruit verse 16 yahweh god commanded the man saying from any tree of the garden you may eat freely but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day you that you eat from it you will surely die you will surely die make no mistake about it adam if you do that when you do that death will occur adam eats the fruit and he doesn't drop dead um adam died what god was promising adam was not the fruit of of death right physical death but it was a, a true death a, a real death a spiritual death right you you will die spiritually when you eat this you will change from the perfect innocence you now find yourself in and you will find yourself with uh only sinful desires alienated and estranged from god now experiencing shame and sin as a as a result of disobeying god and then adam only reproduced as we know after his own kind if you flip the page to genesis 6 fast forward a little bit in history we're at the time of noah just before the flood verse 5 god gives this assessment of man then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that that's the that's the external right what he's doing on the earth is wicked but not only is what he does wicked but he goes on to say that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually every intent of the thoughts that occur in his heart were, were only evil all the time 
that's how bad man is. Every thought that he has in his inner self is only always evil. Job, if you fast forward to Job, Job in, in terms of chronology comes a little, little bit uh, after Noah. He's between Noah and Abraham. Job chapter 4. Apparently the flood did not fix this. Because we get to Job and one of his friends who's misdiagnosing Job's particular situation actually makes this right observation. Job chapter 4 verse 17. Can mortal man be in the right before God? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. No. Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his, his servants, God puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are tr crushed like the moth. Right? Man's frailty, man's weakness. He's pointing out that man is incapable of doing anything to remedy his sinful condition. Absolutely. You only have evil thoughts continually apart from Christ, how could you do anything about your situation? You can't make yourself pure before God. It's an impossibility. Man is only always ever sinful continually. Every thought of his heart, he can't do anything about it. He's completely powerless to change that about himself. How does God feel about this man? Go to, go to Psalm chapter 5, or Psalm 5. This is um, your, your next book over. God is not indifferent toward this unmixed, sinful man. God is not apathetic. God is not only grieved by this man. But look at Psalm 5, starting in verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Right? That, that's what happened to Adam. He became evil and couldn't stay in God's immediate presence. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. Yahweh abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And just as a reminder, when we're, when we're reading and come across the Lord in all caps, that's the personal name of Yahweh. Um, Israel's specific covenant-keeping God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, I am that I am, that God will not is committed to not dwelling with evildoers not allowing evil to dwell in his presence in verse 5 makes a claim about god's character that is absolutely impossible to get around what is god's disposition according to psalm 5 verse 5 toward the unmixed sinful man he hates them What do you do with that? God 
not indifferent, not sad, this verse says, not remorseful, but positively hateful toward the evildoer. And notice it's not toward the evil, right? That'd be a convenient uh, loophole. He, hate, he loves the sinner and, lo- and hates the sin. Well, that's, that is, that's also true, right, from other passages. Does God love sinners? Well, he, he, uh, Psalm 17 says he gives them fruit of the womb as an expression of his goodness and love toward them. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that he makes the sun uh, shine on the just and the unjust. And he says that because God does that, then you should love your enemies too. So God is even a model for us loving our enemies because he does the very same thing by, to people who are at enmity with him, giving them good gifts, blessing them, showering them with kindness. So does God love the sinner? Absolutely. And, and he hates the sinner. The one who is without Christ and rejects his, his way of salvation refuses to believe in him, refuses to submit to his authority. This says that God also hates them. And uh, that, that creates some tension for us, right? Because um, if, if we're thinking, well, I, I, I could never do that. I can't love and hate the same person. Well, marvel at God's ability to do both. Uh, that should be another reminder as we look at this that God is absolutely unlike us. He is far greater than us. He has a capacity to demonstrate a, a love for his enemies that we could never even fathom. We couldn't match God's love for his enemy and the people that we even love. Right? God treats his enemies better than the people, than the loved ones, that, than we treat our loved ones, if you will. But this is, this is absolutely essential to understanding what's happening on the left side of this chart. This person who only does evil before God, even in his attempts to do good, right? All of uh, the unregenerate man's philanthropic efforts, giving away millions of dollars in charitable donations, all of those things, that doesn't change what we've read God says. And so God's disposition toward this person who's absolutely helpless to change himself is, is one of enmity. Uh, he hates God, and God hates him. He wrongfully hates God with no reason, no good reason for hating God. And God only has every good, good reason, the right, to hate him um, because he has refused to acknowledge God's uh, worthiness to be worshipped. Aubrey, what is, what's, the, what's the motivation for somebody behind a, uh, behind like the philanthropic thing that you were just talking about? You know, he's, he's philanthropic, he, you know, helps the old lady across the street, he's, you know, what, what are the motivations behind that and how do we know that that's, that's not good? Yeah, great question. Um, there could be a, a myriad of reasons that somebody does horizontal, right? horizontally beneficial things for other people. Uh, Paul talks about the Jews uh, seeking to establish their own righteousness by the law, right? Um, because our, 
God created everything, all of creation, to acknowledge his greatness and worthiness to be worshipped, right? And, and not ironically, we derive our greatest joy and blessing in actually doing that, in marveling at God, worshipping him, fearing him, obeying him. Uh, Proverbs 3 says, blessed uh, is the one who finds wisdom and who gets understanding, right? The person who rejects God uh, does not want to worship God, but seeks their own honor, seeks their own glory, right? And if I acknowledged that I was this kind of person, that I was absolutely helpless and could contribute nothing to my own salvation, to my own uh, righteous standing before God, well, there's no glory in that for me. What's left for me, right? So the person who's committed to self-glorification refuses to uh, acknowledge that none of their works are good. And they would rather go about their life trying to convince themselves, God, and others, no, watch, I can actually do good things. Millions of dollars to others. Um, you know, I would go to some third world country and live in poverty, helping those poor people, um, Mother Teresa and others, so that I can finally, at the end of the day, stand before God and say, see, God, I did it. I am good. Right. Like Gandhi, right? Yeah. Right? And so things that we, we benefit each other. Um, and praise God that unbelievers still do that, right, in God's providence. Um, if, if, if no one gave any thought to that, it'd be a much worse world um, on a practical level. But the point here is that before God, even those good works appear when they come from unbelief and, and this kind of heart, they're, they're, they're bad. They're not, they're not worthy of, of, uh, of God's notice, only of, only of his wrath. Uh, flip over real quick to, to Matthew chapter 6. Sorry, seven. Jesus talks about humans benefiting each other and included in his description of how it's common for people to do good to each other. He says something about who those people still are who do uh, humanly beneficial things. Look at uh, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. This is Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it, it, it will be opened. Or what man, he's making a point about, about God, right? Um, God's willingness to, to give of himself and what is good. And then he asks rhetorical questions to just further illustrate the point. Verse 9. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will not give him, uh, he will not give him a snake, will he? Right? This is just obvious that parents 
seek to benefit and bless their children. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So notice in verse 11, he says that the people are, who, who give are what? If you then being evil, you're evil, know how to give what kind of gifts? Good gifts. So what's good? The gift, the person giving it is still evil. Right? That's, that's what we're talking about. Um, God has given something good to a parent, right? Uh, provision. And he shares with his children. Well, thank you for doing that. Good. It's the, the world's uh, better, in a sense, when you don't do that. But what does that mean before God, right? Before God, the parent who seeks to bless his child from an unbelieving heart committed to his own autonomy in rebellion against God is incurring more wrath because they are proving in giving good gifts to their child that God is the ultimate giver, give, giver of all good gifts, as scripture tells us. And yet they still resist God's authority, God's good authority over them. Any other questions before we before we move on? All right. Um, when is this the case? Uh, go go back to Psalm fifty one. We'll look at Psalm 51 and Psalm 58 because David makes an interesting claim, the same claim really about himself and his enemies, about when this sinful condition started. So David, in his remorse and repentance over his heinous sins against uh, really lots of people, Bathsheba included, makes this claim, he reminds himself in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. The state of David's sinfulness did not begin any later in life than conception and at birth. He was in this state coming from the womb. And then he says something similar about his enemies. Flip over to Psalm 58. Verse 3 says, He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who... Tra oh, sorry, that's uh, 57. 58. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful, skillful caster of spells. The point there being, David, not only did he see himself as a sinner hopelessly doomed from the womb, but when he thinks of his enemy's sin currently, he, he's reminded that started at the womb as well, for them as well. Everybody is in this state, me and my enemies, from birth. 
I might be throwing a wrench here. All right, I'm going to say but What would you say to someone, Omri, who's struggling with maybe they've lost a child, right? At birth, and maybe this is for another time. Uh, yeah. Yep. That's it. Yeah, that's a that's a great question that we're not going to answer now. Okay. Um, no, that's 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 not a bad question though. Um, Emily and I have had three miscarriages, and we've had to we've had to think through that. So um, we can we can talk after. Yep. Um, so this is this is where we're this is where we're at. Uh, you have several New Testament passages uh, there in the middle of your chart. Um, that that further describe this person in this unregenerate state, and, and we'll look at a few of those. Go to Romans 5. <clears throat> and several of these New Testament passages, they're helpful because they just compound the descriptions one on top of another even in some of the contexts where they're describing the the remedy like what we'll see now Romans 5 verse 6 for while we were still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly for one will hardly die for a righteous man though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he did something. Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This passage mentions that we are helpless, verse 6. Not righteous is implied, right? Verse 8 says that we're, we're sinners. That's the, that's the opposite of righteous. Um, that's common lingo for us, right? Um, and, and, well, yeah, everybody sins. And so we, because everybody does it, we tend to think of, hey, it's not that big a deal. No, do you know what that, that means to be called a sinner? Um, that's not a, a small matter. That you actually offend God, you've offended God. Um, he needs to be rescued from God's wrath, as we have already talked about. He needs to be saved from that. That is what salvation is about. It's a deliverance from the wrath of God primarily. Man is not primarily saved from him, himself, his bad decisions, his uh, mistakes. What he, his primary problem is God because God is the ultimate judge, right? I've told um, some people, I don't have a hell to put you in. And you can't, you can't put yourself in hell either. You're not your ultimate judge. I'm not no other man. God is the ultimate judge. That makes him the ultimate problem um, and one with whom we must deal. Um, think about verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Anybody who needs to be reconciled to God is not neutral. He's an enemy. Right? 
And what does it take? How bad is man? What must happen to man who is so bad in order to rescue him from that wrath? Verse 10 says that this rescue, this reconciliation must come through the death of God the Son. Think about that. How bad am I? God himself must die as the solution to my problem. Animals couldn't do it. Another mere man couldn't do it, says Psalm 49, 7 to 9. The, the price is too high that another man can redeem his brother or even himself. The price is too high. It takes the value of the life of God himself, which is why Jesus couldn't just be a man, right? By implication. That's why John said, Behold the Lamb of God, because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. That's right. That's right. It can't just be another man, uh, lamb that I bring. That's right. God's sacrifice. So you said, you said the value of the life of God himself. So was it God's perfection? Because Jesus had to come and live a perfect life. So was it God's perfection that was able to atone, or was it God's godness that was able to atone? Um, Jesus could have died day one. It would have been sufficient. Right? He didn't... It wasn't... Uh, in order to, to uh, qualify him, if you will, he was already infinitely worthy. Right? Um, as soon as he took on flesh, his blood was priceless. Um, and he could have atoned. Um, just by the, the mere fact that he was God, he was qualified to go to the cross. Um, if he would have lived a day less if you will, you know, he could have, he could have atoned, atoned for sin. All right. Um, you've got several other, other passages there. Um, we could look at, at many more, obviously. Um, but it's, it's just crucial to understand that there is not anything before God that this man does that is good. However long each of you men lived who are Christians, everything you did before your conversion, right, day one, was only adding to your debt and culpability before God. There was no good thing that you did prior to the event that we're going to talk about now, regeneration. Okay? And God was only, um, he, he, was, he was wrathful toward you, toward me, in that condition. And yet God, in his mercy, did something about that when we were helpless. Um, and that's what regeneration is. Uh, regeneration simply means a, a, a new birth. To be born again is, is where we get that, that term. To be born again, regeneration. Uh, some synonyms throughout scripture, it's, it's called heart circumcision. Right? You must uh, be circumcised, circumcise your heart. God himself said he would circumcise uh, the heart. Being made alive, Ephesians 2.5, is what regeneration is. Think about how much you had to do with being born the first time. 
Okay, exactly. It's an adequate description of what needs to happen to people. Okay, you have exactly that much to do with your second birth. There's, there's nothing contributed by man in this event. And it's significant that it's, it's an event. This isn't a process. This isn't something that is worked toward. It's not something that happens in stages, right? Um, many of us, some, some of us are converted. The first time I heard the gospel, boom, the lights came on and, and the whole world was different for me. Some people, if you think about the, you know, God getting you to the point where he finally saved you, when you were finally born again, you can think about specific people, you can think about multiple conversations. If you had believing parents, you can think about hearing the gospel dozens of times in your own home before it finally clicked and I realized, oh man, I'm a sinner and offensive to God, right? That doesn't make regeneration a process. Okay? Even if God is doing something in the life of the unmixed man, that changes in an instant, and it's not in stages. Even if the out external events of our lives you know, are, are various. Regeneration, question? Yeah, because I, I was thinking about that. If I get that it's not a process, but oftentimes you can see in the life of a believer how God orchestrated to kind of bring someone to that place Mm-hmm. And so how do I how do I categorize that? Why does God I mean he doesn't need to do that. So what Yeah. Help me with that. Um You're asking what's the category then for someone who seems like something's happening. He's receptive, he's open, he's listening. Yeah. He can articulate what's true maybe, but I don't see a changed life. Um yeah. Uh, in terms of categories, that person is still in the same state, right? Just at a starting point. Um, only ever sinful, even if I'm listening to the gospel, I'm open, I'm receptive. Uh, maybe I even feel bad about sin and there's guilt um, that's good, right? Um, and I'm ashamed of the way I've been living, and yet for one reason or another, this person is still reluctant to submit to Christ. Uh, I I have a category for that. Um, Scripture does, right? Judas felt bad about his sin. Ahab felt bad about his sin. Um, There's a capacity in the unregenerate man to feel shame, uh, to feel sorrow, Yet, it's not a sorrow that results in in true repentance. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7 describe a worldly grief, right? Judas even didn't even want the money, you know, returned the money. Uh, And yet, his heart didn't turn. Uh, He didn't didn't, uh, seek reconciliation with God. Um, He didn't seek to right his wrong in a will in a sense um, on God's terms it was on his own so he was still committed to 
his own righteousness, even though it, he killed himself in it, you know? So, I mean, the unregenerate man still has a capacity to, to know the truth, to articulate the truth, uh, which, which tells you something about the, depra- the, the depth of depravity, right? Uh, there's a, a guy, I can't remember his name. He, he was on crusades with Billy Graham. Um, I think Templeton was his last name. He was uh, expected at one point in their ministry together to surpass Billy Graham in terms of uh, influence and evangelicalism. And uh, this guy eventually uh, rejected the faith after what some would say, turning you know many to Christ, preaching the gospel for years. Uh, what about him? You know, how can you articulate truth, a legitimate gospel, and yet walk away from the faith eventually. And he became an atheist and, and died in, in unbelief because he couldn't reconcile the goodness of God with human suffering. Um, God uses who, whomever he will. Uh, and yet at the end of the day, this event has to happen to anybody who's a true believer is what it comes down to. Um, this, this never happens apart from the gospel, right? It's not like God is randomly, because it's all up to God to, to cause somebody to be born again, he doesn't do this arbitrarily, right? Um, it is all up to God to cause somebody to be born again, but this is never apart from the means that God has determined to cause people to be born again. Look at James chapter 1. We'll start at verse 17, James 1:17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, from this God who gives good and every perfect gift that is ever given, what did he choose to do? In the exercise of his will, this is what he did. He brought us forth by what means? The word of truth. The word of truth. He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. It is through the proclamation of the gospel, not apart from it, that God causes men to be born again. Not apart from the gospel, but through the proclamation of the gospel that God causes men to be born again. And along with that proclamation, when the word goes forth, when we, in our various spheres, neighbors, children, family, co-workers, uh, students, when we articulate the gospel, God in his extraordinary kindness chooses sometimes to cause people to be born again. That happened to each of us who believes in Christ. Someone articulated the gospel and either in that moment when we were hearing it or later when we were considering it, 
God chose to give us a new spirit, a brand new birth. Um, we have just under underneath, you see the regeneration triangle goes all the way down into that gray portion at the bottom of the left panel. You have on the left the theological summaries of the gospel, right? Um, adoption through propitiation, penal substitutionary atonement, or we get God through Jesus' death in our place. That's essentially what each of those is saying. Adoption through propitiation. You get to become a son of God because the son of God, Jesus, was a propitiation or wrath-bearing substitute in your place. Uh Penal substitutionary atonement. Three important words in describing the gospel. Uh, penal, it has to do with a penalty. A penalty had to be incurred substitutionary by a substitute in order to atone, provide atonement. Um, a a um, covering or way to... Um, forgot to overlook your sin so that you and he are are brought into a reconciled relationship is what atonement is the sins are done away with and the re the relationship is restored between God and man and so when the word goes forth when that word goes forth God chooses in its kindness to regenerate man now at that moment of conversion Right in that event, instantaneously, these things uh, there are certain things that are that are just become true of the 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 new man, and we'll get to the regenerate man in in uh, our next meeting. But this unregenerate man who could never do good, in the instant that that person under God's wrath is transformed in regeneration in the new birth there that next column over the regeneration event components there are things that just become instantaneously true of him positional sanctification when God regenerates him he is set apart unto God right for God's purposes he is justified or declared righteous. He's not made righteous. That's Catholicism. He is declared righteous. Regeneration does not, is not a commentary on your practical holiness. Right? Um, if, if I'm a drunkard, and I, you know, some people might be regenerated in a drunken state. <laughs> Hey, it's possible. That doesn't say anything about their sobriety. They will still have uh, to fight sin, to put off sin. But they're declared righteous. And so God the judge slams the gavel, says, you, righteous. It, does, it doesn't necessarily say how God sees you in the sense that... Um, when I sin, he doesn't really see that I sin. Well, no, he, he does practically. He just has written the banner of righteous, the label righteous on you. 
because all of your sins uh, have already been punished on Jesus. And in this moment, he is declaring you now righteous. Does that make sense? Yeah. Imputation uh, is true. Um, the believer gets credited with God's righteousness, with Christ's own blamelessness, right? As righteous as Jesus always was before God, when God declares a sinner righteous, that righteous standing becomes the believer's. It's, it's owned by this new regenerate man. 2 Corinthians 5.21, maybe the best verse to, to illustrate that. This is a, uh, he became, he who knew no sin, he made him who knew no sin to become sin uh, for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. The believer possesses the righteousness of God, uh, the innocence of Christ, because a, an exchange has taken place. Jesus took our sin. God gives us his righteousness. That is automatically true the moment that someone is converted. Uh, adoption. God adopts us as his own children, which is amazing. That's better than just not getting hell, but you actually become a son of God. You're not saved into a, a neutral some sort of neutral relationship to God, but you actually become a son um, loved by God as much as Jesus, if you can imagine that. Scripture says. So does that mean that if I was chosen and I have the banner of righteousness on me, like that preacher that would you know, bring people to Christ, but then he cannot do that, he cannot do it? That's a great question. Um, how can that be undone? Um, it can't be. It can't be. Uh, there's just just like uh, Nicodemus recognized, how can I go back into my mother's womb to be born? Right, that that can't happen. Um, you can't unbirth your your first birth. Uh, regeneration is just that. It is God's. Uh, absolute transformation in a life. The unregenerate man can look like, in some ways, just externally, like this preacher, um, a regenerate man at times, just like what we'll talk about, the regenerate man can look like the unmixed sinful man. Unregenerate people at times, right? Um, when believers are in sin, um, when we do sin, we are looking like the world, and that's possible. But it's never possible to go back and forth between categories. Does that make sense? Um, once the new birth takes place, you're born. So does that mean that there's a change that happens inside of me and I'll go, I'm not perfect, so I may continue to fall in some kind of sin that I'm still, um, I'm going to seek. I'll begin to have that feeling inside me that I want to keep seeking righteousness, to keep, keep seeking the Lord. Absolutely. When, when regeneration takes place, uh, you do have new desires. You're, you have a, a changed will. You have a changed uh, desire. You have uh, new thoughts. 
right? Um, your, your eyes are, are enlightened, as Psalm 19 says, right? Um, from, from God's truth. And so you, I mean, how many of that, how many of us did that happen to, right? You, you were an unbeliever and you, you knew, man, God saved me. And like the next morning I woke up and everything just seemed different. I didn't enjoy the same things, uh, the same friends. I just didn't have the same enjoyment in being with them, right? The same activities. So yeah, that change happens. You will still sin, as we all know. And yet the trajectory of your life has been completely changed. And Armin, would you say too that one of the evidences would be perseverance to the end? Yeah. Whether or not regeneration happened is is determined by whether or not you persevere. First John three nineteen. Which says what? First John three nineteen, I think it says uh, talking about those who go out from the church. Um, two nineteen, yeah. They went out from us because they were not uh, of us. Yeah, but if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown they are all not of us. Yep. Um, look at look at Colossians one real quick. Josh just preached this. We'll go. We'll go. We'll wrap up in in five minutes. Um, verse 21, starting at 21, this gives us a, a, a description of the unregenerate man, of something that happened to us positionally in regeneration, and uh, it ties in what Josh mentioned about perseverance, okay? So starting in verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's the unmixed sinful man. Yet he has not done something, reconciled you in his fleshly body through his death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Reconciliation took place, right? You were brought into a, a loving, friendly relationship with God, no longer at enmity, and this, notice it says, he has now reconciled you. Like, happened in the past, ongoing effects into the present. I was reconciled by God and still experienced that reconciliation now, right? That is true of me based on a future condition. That is true of me now based on a future condition. Verse 23 says, if you were reconciled by God, if... Indeed, you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Isn't that fascinating? God has done something to you that you still experience today if you remain steadfast. So you just follow that logic backwards. If you don't remain steadfast, then you are not currently reconciled, and he has never reconciled you. I think that's the point of the passage where it says his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. As we look at the past and we see God causing us to persevere through difficulties, we can, we can have confidence and assurance in our, our salvation, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's the spirit. Romans 8. 
All of these other things underneath at the bottom of the chart uh, that are in the regeneration section are, are true of the believer. He's united with Christ. Uh, his sin is removed. Um, his propitiation was accomplished. Uh, redemption has occurred. Reconciliation, forgiveness. So God doesn't hold any of your sins against you. The old man is crucified. Just all of that is just true for the believer. Uh, the benefits that you see on, there on the right, these are unchangeable realities. He's loved by God. He's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's indwelt by Christ. He's a member of Christ's body. He becomes members of one another, right? Other believers. He has confident access to God. He's not under uh, law, but under grace. He's saved from God's wrath. He's free from condemnation, never to be condemned again, Romans 8.1. He's inseparable from Christ, again, Romans 8. He has peace with God. He bears fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. His citizenship is now in heaven. He's awaiting a coming kingdom. I mean, all of these things are true the moment God saves somebody in regeneration and they're born again. Now, we may not feel like all of those things are true. We may not um, see all of those things manifested in an instant, right? And praise God, it is not about the way we feel or how we perceive things, but it is what God has done for the hopeless individual who's lost without him. Any questions as we wrap up? Okay, next time we'll, we'll talk about if that has happened to you, what that means for shepherding your heart now in this new condition with all of these new realities as somebody who can now obey God. Uh, let me pray for us. God, thank you for these remarkable truths that we would have no access to understanding if it were not apart from you. Um, Christ said that no one comes to the Father unless he's drawn by the Son, and we thank you for drawing those of us who believe. Uh, help us in the coming uh, days and weeks that we would remember this, that it would compel us to be compassionate toward others, to be zealous, to preach the gospel, to be bold and humble and uh, charitable neighbors to those who are still lost in sin, and even toward... Uh, those of us who are in your body who know you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.